The school I attended had a large assembly hall. All schools have that. Our school building was very old, and on the back wall, the back of uh, where we all used to face every morning, there were several huge wooden panels up high on the wall. And carved into those panels were the names of all the former pupils who had died serving their country in World War I and World War II. And I know that many schools have something similar to that. And in fact, just about every village around the country has some kind of memorial, usually carved in stone. And we have our national memorial. And those memorials are not just lists of names. They are actually rolls of honor. Those names are not just there so we remember them. The idea is, as we remember, we honor those individuals. We stop to remember they made a valuable contribution. Those honor rolls remind us it wasn't just the king or the prime minister who achieved victory. It was achieved through the work of many. And I mention those honor rolls because we come to one of them this morning in the Bible, in 2 Samuel. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the epilogue to this book. The final chapters are here, really, to sum up. They give us an overall picture of David's reign. And this morning, we have a list of David's mighty warriors in chapter 23. If you're turning there in a church Bible, it's page 331. And in the large print Bibles, page 509. 2 Samuel 23. And before we read this, I'm just going to mention something we need to be aware of as we read. Throughout this, we're going to find references to the three and also the thirty. And initially, we might think, well, that means there was an elite group of thirty warriors and then an even more elite group of three warriors. And that is probably pretty close to it. But after we're given the names of three men who were in the three, we're told about three other men who seem to have been in the three. And the very last verse of the chapter tells us there were actually 37 men in the 30. What's going on? Well, it is not a case of very bad maths. It seems the three and the thirty were actually more like military ranks. So maybe to begin with, in the early days of David's reign, there were thirty men who stood out in the army for their ability and their bravery to an exceptional degree. And those men were given extra honor and responsibility in the army. And then during David's 40-year reign, some of that original group of 30 would have retired, some would have died. Other men would have been promoted to the group. Sometimes it may have had less than 30 members, and sometimes more than 30. But apparently the name stuck. It continued to be called the 30. The same seems to be true of the three. So as we read through this, think of the three and the thirty as ranks. Something like 
colonels and captains. That will make things a bit clearer. We're going to read from chapter 23, verse 8, down to the end of chapter 23. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bas Hebeth, a Tachemonite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pazdamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Among the thirty were Isahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shammah, the Haradite, Elikah, the Haradite, Helez the Paltite, Ira son of Ikesh from Tekoa, Abiezar from Anathoth, Sebekai the Hushathite, Zalmon the Ahohite, Maharai the Natophathite, 
Heled of Bana the Natophathite, Ithai, son of Ribai from Gibeah and Benjamin, Benaiah the Pirathonite, Hidai from the ravines of Gash, Abi Albon the Arbathite, Asmaveth the Barhumite, Eliaba the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, son of Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiham, son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphelet, son of Ahazbai, the Machathite, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezru, the Carmelite, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, son of Nathan from Zobah, the son of Hagri, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Berethite, the armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite. There were 37 in all. This is God's word. And if I can just untwist my tongue after all that. <laughs> this is a section full of heroic men doing heroic deeds of all different kinds. Why is it here? Well, taken as a whole, this list makes clear, David's kingdom was not a one-man show. David did not preserve Israel and overcome Israel's enemies all by himself. Nor was it all down to David plus Joab. Yes, Joab was the overall commander of Israel's army, but he's not mentioned here apart from the information that Abishai and Ezahel were his brothers and that Naharai was his armor-bearer. But Joab is only in the background here. Many of the names in this chapter don't get a mention anywhere else. A few of them are mentioned elsewhere, but not very many. If it wasn't for this chapter, these names would have vanished into the mists of history. But here we learn there were many capable, courageous men who fought for the kingdom. The success of David's kingdom was a collective enterprise. Many contributed, and they contributed in remarkable ways. And surely one of the reasons their names are here is to inspire us. God notices the contributions that might otherwise go unnoticed. The Bible, remember, is God's own record of history. These otherwise obscure names have a place on his honor roll. Even if they don't appear on anyone else's honor roll. So be encouraged about your own kingdom work, whatever it is. We've mentioned friends and neighbors earlier. Discoverers, 116, Sunday school, coffee morning, welcoming at the door, music, home group, lots of other things. It's right that we as a church recognize all that different kingdom work. It's a biblical thing to do. Paul does it in the New Testament. He is fond of listing men and women who serve faithfully, who would otherwise go unrecorded. Paul acknowledges their contribution in a similar way to what we find here. 
But the point is, the Bible is God's record. And so even when things go unnoticed in the eyes of the church, they are not unnoticed by God. They're in his record. So that's one point that comes out of this section taken as a whole. But when we go on to look at it in detail, we find three things presented here. Great victories, great devotion, and great failure. And we're also shown a truth about each of these. So first of all, verses 8 to 12 describe great victories. They tell us about remarkable accomplishments involving three men. Josheb, Bas-Hebeth, Eleazar, and Shammah. The first one we hear about is Josheb, Bas-Hebeth. We're told he was chief of the three, which probably means foremost of the three. The most outstanding of a pretty outstanding bunch. Verse 8 says, He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. It would be fascinating to hear more about that. It would also be pretty gory. But this is all we get. Then comes Eleazar, son of Dodai. Verse 9 tells us, As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pazdamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Whatever caused this freezing of the sword to his hand, whether it was hardened blood and gore that had run down from his sword, whether the muscles in his arm went into a spasm and locked his hand tight round the sword, whatever the details, this is another great victory. One warrior standing his ground against the enemy. And then comes Shammah, son of Agi. Verse 11 says he took his stand in a field full of lentils. What's that got to do with anything? Well, the Philistines, we know, were raiders. And no doubt they came on this occasion to steal the Philistines, the Israelites' harvest. That's what attracted them. And the NIV says Israel's troops fled from there in the face of the Philistines. Literally, the people fled. It's more likely these are the local farmers and their families who run away. They've worked hard for those lentils. But the Philistines can have them. These people prefer to save their lives. All except Shammah. He stands in the middle of that field and he defends it. The Philistines came for lentils, but what they got was Shammah's sword instead. Three men, three great victories. What's the message? The message is that great victories are accomplished by God. 
You notice that in the text here, after the report of Eleazar's victory, verse 10 says, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And after Shammah's victory, verse 12 says, the Lord brought about a great victory. The message is, the human courage on display is amazing. The human strength and skill is amazing. It's inspiring. But behind it all, here is the real power. These victories were gifts given to Israel by the Lord. It turns out that Joshebas Hebeth and Eleazar and Shammah were instruments in the hands of the Lord. Those men had courage and strength we can hardly imagine. It's right they're honored here with a place in God's record. Not because of the blood and gore, but because they stood firm for the sake of God's kingdom. You and I probably recoil from all the gore. But we can recognize in their time and their place, God's people were defending a land. At this point in history, God's people are a political entity. They're defending territory God had given them. Defending territory requires weapons and force. That is not our situation today. But we can appreciate the valor and the dogged resistance of these men. And yet, the text leaves us in no doubt. The real honor belongs to the Lord. The New Testament tells us the kingdom you and I fight for is not a piece of land. The weapons we fight with are not made of metal. We fight spiritual battles for human souls. We fight with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That much has changed for you and I. But what has not changed is that victories are still accomplished by God. Every time we stand firm as God's people, every time we gain ground, every single time a sinner repents, yes, there is human courage and human effort involved, but every victory is a gift given by God. And so let's honor God for those victories. We're quite good, I think, at praying for God's help ahead of time. But when he gives a victory of some kind, let's take equal care afterwards to give him thanks and honor. Already, we're beginning to see this honor list is ultimately a God-honoring list. He is the real mighty one. And that becomes even clearer in the next section. Verses 13 to 17 show that great devotion belongs to God. Look at verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam. 
while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now we know from 1 Samuel that David spent time at the cave of Adullam long before he ever became king. He hid there while he was an outlaw running from Saul. And it's quite possible this incident came from that time. Many of his warriors joined him in those early years. But it's also quite likely David used Adullam at other points during his reign in difficult times. So we don't know when exactly this happened. But the enemies, we know very well, they are the usual suspects, the Philistines. There's a constant to and fro between Israel and the Philistines. The upper hand never stayed very long with either side. And on this occasion, we're told the Philistines have come well into Israel. Their main camp is at Bethlehem. That's about 12 miles from Adullam. And significantly, Bethlehem is David's hometown. And in that context, verse 15 tells us, David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Verse 13 told us this is harvest time. That means it's hot and it's dry. But I don't think that's all David's thinking about here. He knows the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He drank from it as a boy. Back at the time when his biggest worry was protecting his dad's sheep. Now he's responsible for a nation. And maybe David's words about the well are partly a longing for those simpler days that he remembers. But whether or not that's true, it is very clear David doesn't expect his words to be taken literally here. He's not meaning to give an order to his man. We know that from his reaction a bit later on. But look what happens when David wishes for Bethlehem water. Verse 16 says, So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Notice the wording. These men broke through the Philistine lines. Now, if they had put on their ninja outfits and done this at night, by stealth in the dark, that would have been very, very impressive. But apparently, these men do something even more mental. They charge the Philistine lines in daylight. Somehow they survive what would have been a 25-mile round trip, and they return to David with a jar of Bethlehem water. And probably a few major scars as well. These men are very brave, very crazy, and above all, very devoted to David. Radically devoted to David. They have just risked their lives to grant David's passing wish. 
but at least they will have the satisfaction of watching him drink his Bethlehem water and refresh himself. That will make it all seem worthwhile for these men. But at the end of verse 16, he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of man who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. We might think, okay, David, it's nice. You want to make some sort of point. But couldn't you make your point and drink the water? I mean, what a waste. And more than that, what a slap in the face for these men. They risked their necks to get you that jar of water. And anyway, what point is David making when he pours out the water? Well, the first thing to realize is David is clearly shaken by what these men have done. It's obvious he didn't expect them to actually do what he had been daydreaming out loud about. David is shaken when he realizes the great devotion of these men. Great devotion to him. The water in David's hand represents their devotion. If David drank the water, he would be saying, I'm worthy of such great devotion as this. And David knows he can't send that message. He knows only the Lord deserves devotion like this. He says this water represents the lives of these men. That's what he means by blood in verse 17. It's their lives I'm holding here. What they're giving me is not just water. They have just laid their lives on the altar for me. But David says, I can't accept that kind of commitment. It belongs only to the Lord. And so verse 16 says, he poured it out before the Lord. So that everyone will get the message. I'm turning your devotion away from me to the one who is worthy of your devotion. One writer says, this is one of David's finest moments. And it is. He sends the message, great devotion belongs to God and only to God. And so as we apply this to ourselves, let's be very careful about the kind of devotion we give to others. If we're married, let's love our spouse wholeheartedly for our whole life long. Let's be fierce about that love. Let's refuse to give any rival a foothold in our marriage. And let's remember, our life is ultimately devoted to God. We love our spouse and we stay faithful to our spouse for the love of God. That's what keeps us faithful. Even when our feelings ebb and flow. Even when our spouse isn't making us happy. Our spouse is not our savior and king. If we expect them to be that, we will be disappointed. 
And they will be strangled by the pressure we put on them. If we have kids, let's make sacrifices for them. Let's pour out our love on them. And let's remember our first love is the God who gave us those children, who entrusted them to us. We care for our children for the love of God. They are not the peril of great price. God is. And we love our families better when we put God first. And we need to be equally careful about this in our friendships. We can idolize friends. We can end up directing to them what ought to be going to God. So let's be very careful about the devotion we give to others. And let's be equally careful about the devotion we expect from others. Let's not put others in a position where you're looking for God-like devotion from them. That is not healthy for anyone. Allow people close to you to disagree with you and question what you're doing. Don't make them feel they have betrayed you just because they challenged you on something. Only God deserves unquestioning commitment. Beware of friends or leaders who demand unquestioning commitment from you. Be alarmed if friends or leaders are willing to accept that kind of devotion from you. Let's not pin our ultimate hopes on any human being. Only God can be trusted with our ultimate hopes. He will never crush a heart that's laid in his hands. And let's love others then out of that security we have in God. The security that he is not going to let us down even if other people do. It's that security in God that allows us to be open with other people and to serve others without getting bitter when they don't measure up, when they turn out to have imperfections after all. We can keep loving them because our hearts belong to the perfect one. They're safe in his hands. They're safe with the one who always measures up. Maybe some of you feel you're just constantly being let down by others. They always seem to disappoint you. Could it be you're looking to those people for things only God can provide you with? Could that be the root of your disappointment in life? That you keep putting your heart in the wrong hands? David knew he was not worthy of anyone's ultimate devotion. 
And the last section of our passage underlines that truth. After the incident with the Bethlehem water, we return to the list of mighty warriors. It resumes with two names we have met before in 2 Samuel. First, Abishai, Joab's brother. We know him quite well. He seems to have had a higher rank than the three. In fact, for a brief time, Abishai was given command of the whole army. And here we're told he was commander of the three. Then comes Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He was in charge of David's bodyguard. And that is not surprising given his ability in hand-to-hand combat. Here in verse 20, we're told he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And the obvious question is, why was he in a pit with a lion? And what does the snow have to do with it? Well, the answer seems to be that Benai was not doing this for fun. He wasn't doing it as a challenge. The pit was most likely a storage area for food supplies. The snow tells us it was wintertime. The time of the year when those precious stores of food were most important in Israel. Of course, it's also the time when food is most scarce for wild animals. And it seems Benaiah went in to save the food from a lion who had broken into this store. In any case, this is the kind of guy you would want as your bodyguard. According to verse 21, he's also good at disarming bigger guys and using their weapons against them. The point being made is the point we saw right at the start. There were many capable, courageous men who fought for David's kingdom. Abishai and Benaiah are just two among many mighty warriors. Verse 24 moves then into a list of their names without any details. No doubt the writer could tell us something about each of these men, some act of bravery or strength. But he has made his point and he continues now with just the names. And down in verse 39, we get to the end of that list. And if I had read verses 24 to 39 again, I would bet this last name is the only name we would know. Uriah the Hittite. It's the only name we know, but we know it very well. From chapter 11 of this book, Uriah and his wife Bathsheba have never been far from our thoughts. Chapter 11 described David's adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. And from then on, we watched as David's family and his kingdom unraveled. And here we are reminded, Uriah was not an enemy of David. He was one of David's mighty warriors. He was one of those who put their lives on the line for David's kingdom. 
I don't think it's any accident at all. The writer of Samuel put Uriah's name last here. That position on the list gives it great emphasis. Someone has said the mention of Uriah throws a dark shadow across the whole list. This honor roll has presented us with great victories and great devotion. And here at the end, it reminds us of great failure. Yes, we've seen on a personal level, David was forgiven. When he repented, his sin was taken away. In God's eyes, he became whiter than snow, despite all of his sin. That was true for David as an individual. But we are dealing here with David's legacy as king. And for all its victories and its successes, at the very heart of David's legacy is great failure. His loyal servants suffered because of his weakness. His brave warriors were betrayed by his lack of self-control and his ambition and his sin. And what you and I need to see is that great failure overshadows every kingdom but one. David was the best there was. We mustn't think that somehow David was the rotten apple in a line of flawless kings. No, as we read through the kings, we discover actually David was the pick of the bunch. He was the shiniest apple of the lot. And yet his sin cast a dark shadow over his kingdom. You and I need to realize it's the same for every kingdom, every government. We heard from the Christian Institute last week about how we ought to be involved citizens. And that's true. We ought to be informed voters. But as we cast our vote and as we write our letters to our MP about particular issues, Let's do that knowing full well we dare not put our hope in human governments and human leaders. Some are better than others, but they're all flawed. As Christians, we put our hope in the one kingdom that cannot fail, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, Jesus Christ. That kingdom stands above all others. That king stands above all mighty warriors. He is the mighty one. And as much as the Bible recognizes human contributions, behind every honor roll stands the God who wins the battle. He is the one, the only one we can trust wholeheartedly. He alone deserves our great devotion.
And he alone gives us victory over sin and death and hell. We're going to end our time by praising him together. We're going to sing, Behold the Lord.